Welcome to the first podcast of Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg of CounterVortex.org. And there's an idea behind or a concept behind the notion of a, um, a counter vortex. I know it sounds a little bit obscure. It sounds like something out of a science fiction novel or something, but it's actually a um, it's a social context, which has to do with the notion to me, the very clear and obvious notion that the planet, the entire planet is spiraling into a vortex of ecological collapse, permanent war and totalitarianism whether of the techno-security state or the religious and ethnic fundamentalisms, which ostensibly oppose it. And through our resistance, we are creating a counter-vortex, and we are generating movement toward sustainability, toward peace and popular democracy, and uh, trying to save some remnants of a, a human future that um, people in future generations will, you know, be able to continue to, to fight for and uh, maybe eventually <clears throat> overthrow the capitalist system and actually make a, a dialectical leap, a qualitative leap into something better, looking at it from a very long-term point of view. And uh, I know it all sounds utopian, but, uh, you know, this a few moments that come along every, um, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, when um, utopian ideas actually catch on and actually, uh, you know, there's sort of a flame which begins to which begins to spread, you know, all around the world. And people actually begin to think in terms of, you know, windows of opportunity opening for maybe, you know, some kind of a decent future or indeed any future for the human race on this planet. And, you know, I'm looking at the recent headlines and I'm actually seeing many such um examples from around the world just over the course of the past several weeks, just over the course of the past month or so. But nobody seems to be drawing the connections between them. To me, it's beginning to smell once again like um, the year 2011, when there was a real sense, just as there was in uh, 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down, um, of... uh, new political vistas and windows of opportunity opening. Remember 2011 when um, the the protester was uh, the person of the year on the cover of Time magazine and we saw the Occupy movement here in the United States and we saw the, uh, the Indignado movement in Spain and in Greece and most significantly we saw the um, beginnings of the Arab Revolution and uh, regimes being, you know, entrenched dictatorships being toppled um, uh, across the Arab world. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at some of the recent headlines um, and I'm beginning to get a little bit nostalgic for uh, 2011, which is a good thing. You know, I know that a lot of, um, you know, the, the ultimate fruits of the Arab revolution were um, sort of disastrous. Uh, you know, the most obvious example being Syria. And we can talk about the various reasons for that. But uh, when, when those movements began in Syria and in Libya and in Egypt and in Yemen and in Bahrain and most significantly in Tunisia, where it all began, which turned out to be the one success story where they actually did overthrow the dictatorship and make a transition to some kind of more meaningful democracy. When those movements began, there was a, uh, a real sense of a real sense of hope and a real sense of of international solidarity. 
and uh, inevitably it gets derailed. So what we're going to um, what we're going to look at tonight is why does it get derailed? And um, how can we avoid it getting derailed? And how can we try to, you know, to keep that revolutionary flame alive and to keep our eyes on the ball politically? And um, actually uh, work for um, and struggle for uh, making the connections. And making the connections is what's really critical because I look at the, um, at, at the headlines over the recent weeks um, which are which are making me sort of nostalgic for 2011, and uh, you know, to me, there's a very very clear uh, trend which is unifying all of these um, all of these social explosions which are going on around the world at the moment. But uh, there isn't yet a sense that I'm picking up from um, from commentators in the media and whatnot that uh, you know there's kind of a uh, a unified spirit behind it all and then these movements are actually viewing each other in solidarity and so on as was the case in uh, in 2011 that hasn't started to happen yet so why don't we take a look at what's been going on recently and uh, examine why the connections aren't being made and what we can do about that well for starters most obviously Iran has been exploding seemingly into um, completely spontaneous protests over um, economic agony and uh, an austerity which is being imposed on uh, working folk and, and the common people of Iran. People taking to the streets all over the country, seemingly without um, without any uh, unified leadership and and without any um, discrete set of demands, but just um, expressing a lot of popular anger. Similarly, we've seen a big protest against um, against neoliberal austerity in Tunisia, in this case explicitly linked to um, a, uh, an austerity package which was uh, being imposed on the country under a, um, a deal between the government and the International Monetary Fund. The IMF put together a big loan package for Tunisia, uh, in exchange for um, the uh, the government there, uh, you know, tightening the belt and squeezing more out of uh, out of the Tunisian people, and uh, subsequently, prices have been going up and new taxes have been imposed for uh, you know everything, including you know internet connection and you know, uh, and, you know buying a home, getting to work, uh, getting a car, transportation, etc. So people have been taking to the streets about this in Tunisia, and this actually has been been led by the by the organized opposition and by the uh, by the labor unions and so on in Tunisia similarly in Sudan uh, once again uh, as a direct result of um, austerity which has been imposed by the International Monetary Fund protests have been sweeping the country those are the big 3 in terms of anti-austerity protests Iran Tunisia and Sudan just uh, over the course of the past 2 weeks or so uh, back in December, going back to December now, there were um, big protests in a, um, a town by the name of Jarada in northeastern Morocco, where um, this had been a, um, a mining town. And again, under, you know, the typical uh, program of austerity and downsizing, the mine was closed and the town was, uh, it was left in... Uh, to sort of uh, shift for itself economically in sort of rust belt conditions. And one of the things that people have been doing to try to survive there is uh, continuing to work 
the mining pit, you know, illegally and just sort of like this improvised, jerry-rigged, um, illegal mining uh, and, you know, selling the minerals on the black market. And of course, you know, no oversight at all and uh, terrible conditions and a couple of, of workers were, were killed in an accident, which sparked a big wave of protest in the town demanding that the uh, the government come in and either shut down or at least begin to regulate the illegal mining which is going on there, and most significantly providing some kind of an economic alternative for um, this whole um, uh, northeastern region of Morocco, which has just sort of been left to rot under the economic program. Big, big protests going on there, uh, which are actually following throughout the entire Rif region of Morocco over the course of the past several months. There's been ongoing waves of, um, of protest, and this has just sort of been a, um, a re-inflammation of what has been a big wave of protest um, in Morocco generally over the past several months. Maybe people didn't catch this, but there were uh, also protests back in December in Beijing, China, which is very, very rare and extremely close to society, obviously. You don't hear very much about, um, about protests happening, uh, especially in Beijing, you know, street protests happening, especially in Beijing, the capital of China, where things are very, very tightly controlled. Um, and the thing is that, you know, uh, here in the West, where there's this sort of strategy of repressive tolerance, as Marcuse called it, uh, you know, it doesn't really, you know, you really have to be very, very creative and make a lot of noise to, uh, you know, to get anybody uh, paying attention to your protest. Whereas in a, um, a society like China, where they aren't using repressive tolerance, but just plain old repression, when people actually have the courage and the wherewithal to protest, it means a lot more because it's such a rarity and it requires so much courage. And um, in a part of the... Um, a sort of a, um, a, a cleanup or gentrification or urban renewal of um, certain out, outlying areas of Beijing where um, uh, dislocated peasants have been coming to the city as migrant laborers and have been setting up squatter camps and so on. Um, a bunch of these camps have been cleared and uh, without any provisions being made for the people who live there. People have just been summarily evicted from their homes, and not only camps, but also, uh, you know, like uh, low-rent apartment buildings have just been um, demolished, apparently on very little uh, notice to the residents. And uh, some of these, uh, you know, people who have been affected by these clearances actually held an organized protest in Beijing, which uh, was very, very... uh, Obviously not reported in the media within China, but fortunately, you know, due to social media, it isn't so easy for the government, even in a place like China, to hush things like that up anymore. And word did get out. It was reported in uh, the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong and so on. Okay, then let's um, jump to the Western Hemisphere. Big protests have been going on in Peru since, um, since Christmas Eve when the uh, sitting president, Kaczynski, uh, granted a pardon to the imprisoned ex-dictator Alberto Fujimori, who um, uh, you know carried out a, a really really brutal reign of terror when he was in power in the 1990s, and uh, was basically imprisoned for life, uh, both uh, due to corruption and much more seriously due to really really horrific human rights abuses, you know, paramilitary massacres, disappearances, and so on. And there's been a lot of pressure from his supporters from the really hardcore right in Peru to have him sprung. And finally, the, uh, the, the, the sitting president in what looks like was a sleazy political deal because he's under fire from a scandal himself. And there was a, um, 
a vote to remove him from office, basically to sort of have him instantly impeached. It's uh, would have been done in one, in one fell swoop, a single vote to get him out of office. And um, he squeaked by because a lot of people in the in the right wing opposition block voted to keep him in office. And immediately after that, days after that, he had Fujimori pardoned. So it was pretty obviously a quid pro quo. And um, immediately Lima exploded into protest and the protests are continue ongoing, not only in Lima, but in uh, Cusco and uh, Arequipa and Cajamarca and cities all across Peru. People have been absolutely outraged taking to the streets about this. And some of the protests in Lima have actually been led by families and survivors and kin of, um, you know, the disappeared and the people who were killed in the paramilitary massacres and so on under under Fujimori's rule. So um, Fujimori is free and this uh, struggle is ongoing. Just uh, just last week, last Thursday, the um, 11th of January, there was another big wave of, uh, of protest in Peru. Similarly, in Honduras, also being shaken by protests, big protest reported from Honduras last week as well, where um, uh, once again, it looks like the um, uh, the elections have been stolen by by the right. And the um, the sort of left populist forces, which um, were uh, in power in 2009, but were overthrown in a right wing military coup d'etat, if people recall, they um, had sort of regrouped and it looked like they had won the presidency. And uh, it was apparently stolen from them by fraud in the middle of the vote. The um, the computers which were counting the vote conveniently crashed. And the left populist candidate who had been ahead before the computer system went down, well, lo and behold, he was behind when the computer system came back up again. So the ruling right-wing National Party looks like, uh, in all probability, it looks like they stole the election. And there have been big protests um, in Honduras about this. And the uh, the left opposition is uh, refusing to accept the, the, the electoral results. And it looks like it's only going to escalate. And once again, it's the same... Uh, issues which are behind this of, you know, neoliberal austerity and, um, you know, the traditional peasant sector of the country being gutted by uh, free trade economics and the, uh, the uh, you know, the narco economy sort of filling the vacuum, leading to the whole wave of, um, you know, really, really horrific violence in Honduras throughout Central America recently. Um, also last month, back in December, in um, Argentina, there were uh, big protests. I bet you didn't even notice that the the World Trade Organization. Remember the World Trade Organization uh, protest in Seattle back in 1999. Well, uh, it just met in Buenos Aires in um, in in mid December, and uh, similarly the. Um, uh, the unions and the left opposition and so on took to the streets and uh, mixed it up with the local constabulary. It happened to happen in the middle of a a wave of um, of strikes and protest over austerity in Argentina. So bad timing. Um, and uh, finally, uh, Ecuador. In Ecuador, there was an actual real win. Very powerful um, indigenous movement in Ecuador, as um, probably a lot of us are aware. And they actually held a, uh, a national march of indigenous people from all over the country. They, they marched cross-country. They actually began in the eastern rainforest, and they marched for, um, for several days onto Quito, the national capital, demanding uh, uh, cultural and territorial rights, and quite particularly demanding the, um, the right to prior consultation on um, mining and oil concessions in indigenous territory. And they actually, uh, you know, they um, 
occupied the Capitol. They occupied Quito and actually uh, forced a, a meeting with the national government in which uh, the national government um, capitulated to their demands and agreed to suspend uh, all of the uh, new mining concessions until um, protocols have been worked out for uh, consultation with the indigenous peoples who actually dwell in the territories. So um, that's uh, that's quite a run there, wouldn't you say, just over the course of the past month or so? Iran, Tunisia, Sudan, Morocco, China, Peru, Honduras, Argentina, Ecuador, and in some cases, some pretty clear-cut victories at that. So I would say that this is all pretty um, counter-vortextual, so to speak. Uh, now let's talk about the downside. Now let's talk about... Um, about why these various upsurges going on in countries all around the world are still seen as merely national and not international, and why there isn't, as there was in 2011, this um, sort of you know internationalist spirit, uh, you know, animating these protests, and and they're all you know sort of viewing each other with a certain sense of solidarity. That hasn't started to happen, happen yet. I will say optimistically yet, and let's examine the reasons for that. Well, um, one extremely obvious one, which is also uh, kind of a really, really frustrating and demoralizing one, is the whole divide and conquer angle. Um, extremely unhelpfully, <clears throat> our Pendejo president here in the United States, Donald Trump, has been speaking out in support of the protesters in Iran, uh, which is obviously sheer hypocrisy and just opportunistic propaganda exploitation of the Iranian protesters. Obviously, he is not supporting the protesters in Honduras. He's not supporting the protesters in Peru or Argentina or Ecuador or any other countries which are within the U.S. Um, imperial orbit. So um, why should he be supporting the protesters in Iran who are essentially taking to the streets over exactly the same issues? obviously cynical opportunistic exploitation of the Iranians for propaganda purposes. Um, and it's really important that we do not get confused about this. And we do not think that the, um, we do not buy the Iranian regime's own propaganda that the, uh, that the protesters have, have all been, you know, stirred up by foreign agents. And the whole thing is, you know, AstroTurf, which was created by enemies of Iran, you know, the CIA or Mossad or George Soros or whatever it is, because that's all nonsense. These, these protests were obviously a spontaneous upsurge and absolutely nothing indicates that any kind of outside agitators were responsible for them. That's simply nonsense. But, you know, it's very convenient for the Iranian regime, which is propagating this nonsense, to, um, you know, it's very convenient to their propaganda that um, Donald Trump is speaking out in favor of the, of the protesters in Iran. So it's important that we do not get confused about this. And it's also, one hopes, you know, that the Iranians themselves are not going to get confused about this. So um, uh, as I stated earlier, you know, the, the nature of the protest in Iran thus far has been that it's all been very, um, very spontaneous and leaderless, and there isn't any, you know, discrete set of demands. There isn't much um, organizational uh, structure behind it all. So a lot of different um, political tendencies are just sort of, um, uh, 
you know, being being expressed. And there have been instances in which uh, some of the protesters has really been hyped by the media, the, by you know, been particularly unfortunately by some elements of the left wing media here in the United States. There have been. Um, uh, instances in which the protesters have, you know, shouted slogans calling for the return of the Shah of Iran, who was, you know, the um, corrupt, dictatorial, U.S.-backed, hereditary monarch of Iran, who was overthrown in the Popular Revolution in 1979. And, uh, you know, the reasons for this are pretty obvious. Most of the people who are taking in the streets, taking to the streets in Iran now, are so young that they don't remember how bad things were under the Shah. And they understand that, you know, that the their current oppressors, the Ayatollahs, have been, um, you know, telling them all of their lives that things were so terrible under the Shah. And they know, quite rightly, that the Ayatollahs are lying to them about most things. So they assume that maybe things weren't so bad under the Shah and that maybe things were even better under the Shah. Um, so, you know, they're confused. And, you know, there's a sort of a... Um, a perfect reflection of that here in the United States where, you know, there's certain, shall we say, deluded elements of the, um, of the, of the radical left here in the United States who, uh, and in the West generally, who support the Islamic Republic of Iran and support the Ayatollahs or have illusions about the Ayatollahs and think that it's some kind of a, um, you know, anti-imperialist state which is standing up to the West when, in fact, it's a, authoritarian theocratic regime which is imposing neoliberal austerity on the workers and the common people of Iran so um, you know just like it's important that the Iranians don't get confused um, it's also important that we do not get confused and the more that we can do here in the West to uh, try to raise a voice in support of the protesters in Iran the more likely it's going to be that the protesters in Iran are going to understand that their allies in the West are protesters and progressives and the left opposition and not Donald Trump and not, you know, exiled supporters of the Shah. So, um, and it should also be noted that the, um, by, by no means should uh, we assume that these um, supporters of the Shah um, represent any kind of uh, significant, uh, you know, or majority current among the protesters. No reason to assume that. Probably, you know, probably most of the of the protesters uh, are just pretty unideological and just angry about the austerity that they've been suffering under and their economic conditions. And uh, we can assume that probably uh, some of them have got um, and. <clears throat> Some of them have got a, a more progressive analysis, and I just uh, recently came a, uh, across a, um, a statement which has been released by um, a, uh, a group of calling itself the Alliance of Middle Eastern Socialists in solidarity with the popular protesters in Iran. So Google that one. Statement from Alliance of Middle Eastern Socialists in solidarity with the popular protests in Iran. Um, another um, rather ominous development we've seen is, uh, it, you know, another place where these has to do with another place where protest movements tend to go wrong is uh, when uh, a particular ethnic group gets scapegoated for, uh, for the economic agony. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, the most horrific dystopian example of this that we've witnessed um, over the course of the past generation and change or so was Yugoslavia. 
going back uh, to the 1990s, where um, immediately before the the whole crisis erupted there, uh, the um, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund had been calling in the chips on the loans to um, to the government of Yugoslavia, and the government responded by uh, imposing austerity, and a lot of people were angry. And unfortunately, the form that that anger took was, you know, instead of getting angry at the government and instead of getting angry at the at the at the International Monetary Fund and instead of getting angry at the bankers and the technocrats, they got angry at each other. The Serbs and the Croats and the Muslims all got really angry at each other. And eventually it escalated to the point of genocide. So um, it's really bad when stuff like that happens. So let's try to avoid that one, too. So uh, on that tip, I'm just going to uh, note that, um, you know, the, the old standard of uh, Jew hatred and blaming, blaming the Jews for um, particularly for uh, things that are carried out by um, you know, crimes that are carried out by uh, by big financial interests. Um, there's been examples uh, of that kind of thing rearing their ugly heads, both in um in Iran and Tunisia. Now, it may not be related, but uh, I will note that um, both in Iran and Tunisia, over the course of the past um, week or so, that there have been these big um, anti-austerity protests. There have also been some very ugly anti-Semitic attacks. In Iran, two synagogues in the city of Shiraz were uh, were vandalized. And, um, and in Tunisia, a, um, a Jewish school on the island of Jerba, which is off the off the coast um, uh, of Tunisia and the Mediterranean. It's uh, one of the oldest indigenous ancient um, Jewish communities, which is still left in North Africa, where people have actually been resisting pressure to um, you know, make, uh, make Aliyah and migrate to Israel because they think of themselves as Tunisian Jews and they don't want to go to Israel. And uh, that one of their uh, Jewish schools was attacked um, by, uh, well, it's not clear by who, by vandals. And uh, in neither case was it, um, was there any kind of um, explicit link, neither in Iran nor in Tunisia, was there any kind of explicit link made between these um, anti-Semitic attacks and, um, and, and the anti-austerity protests. But the fact that they, you know, both happened in the midst of the anti-austerity protest is worrying that, um, you know, it's sort of a, uh, you know, a divide and conquer game, which is going on here that we can see in, uh, you know, people scapegoating each other, scapegoating their neighbors on the basis of their um, ethnicity or their religion, instead of keeping their eye on the ball and understanding, you know, who the enemy is and that it's a class enemy, not a religious or ethnic enemy. And uh, then you've got the divide and conquer aspect of, um, you know, um, Protest movements being manipulated in the, uh, you know, the, the great game, the geopolitical chessboard, which the great powers and the, um, and, you know, <clears throat> uh, you know, cynical world leaders like Donald Trump are playing where they're trying to, um, you know, manipulate the protesters for propaganda purposes and pit them against each other. Um, so as to, you know, advance their own imperial agendas on the world stage. So, um, that's, uh, you know, shall we say, the vortex element of the whole situation where, um, where you can see already the seeds of, um, of these movements being derailed and getting sucked down into um, destructive tendencies and, and internecine fighting and, um, and, 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 and protest viewing each other with suspicion rather than with unity. And if we can actually um, 
uh, kindle a sense of international solidarity so that the protesters in Iran, in Tunisia, in Sudan, in Morocco, in China, in Peru, in Honduras, in Argentina, in Ecuador, and here in the United States of America, begin to uh, view each other with solidarity and begin to make common cause with each other and, um, and support uh, their mobilizations and their popular movements against you know, the um, uh, international uh, lords of capital, then we will uh, begin to see the counter vor textual tendency coming to the fore. And uh, that's what I'm fighting for. How about you guys? Join the counter vortex, join the resistance, and check us out online, countervortex.org. I'm Bill Weinberg. Talk to you next time.